Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll toast a legendary local hero restaurant and brewery that's been around since the 90s, the People's Pint in Greenfield, as we chat with its owner, Alden Booth. And we'll hear more about the places that didn't make it quite that long, but are still missed here in the 413 with more of your gone but not forgotten emails. Plus, game nerd Justin Dowd talking about essential games to keep nearby during stressful times, including a move, perhaps. Like, maybe if you're ready to go back to school. UMass moves in in just a couple of days. And up first, UMass professor Amherst Max Page, president of the largest union, not only in Massachusetts, but also in New England, the Massachusetts Teachers Association. When he's not busy presidenting, Max is a professor of architecture at UMass Amherst and is one of the founders of Phenom, the Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts. And a huge UMass football fan, from what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> they won their first game. They're oh, totally I... going to go with this. this uh, <laughs> other than that. Well, I mean, like, so the question is, are they going to actually keep this streak up or is it going to happen like last year where, like, they would have a really good first first quarter, and then all of a sudden would just like collapse on themselves for reasons beyond anyone. Listen, I don't, I can't predict their winning or losing score. I can predict that we will continue to waste millions of dollars on I mean, a Division One football team. And we hopefully we'll get to that in a little bit because that is uh, what my first introduction to Max Page was was through that and being such a vocal critic of UMass deciding to go to Div One in football and the money spent there to the point where Max often texts me when the UMass Minutemen football team has lost badly. Not that I'm a big supporter of Div 1 football. You must have been getting a lot of texts over <laughs> the did. last Let few years. Let me be clear. Years. I love the marching band. And I love the marching yeah, band. Yeah, but the marching band is like is for everybody. Yes. They're exactly. for all of the teams. And the frankly, band. like our band is one of the better bands since I used to run, I still do, run the, bo the board for the UMass hockey games. And I get to hear them in comparison to other people's bands. And there's very few who are better than they are. Here, here, right. something we can all agree on. Something that may or may not be something that everybody can agree on is MCAS. The what's the acronym but, for again? Massachusetts Comprehensive, comprehensive assessment, assessment System. System, but it's not really comprehensive at all, which is part of the problem. Anyway, we'll get to that. And, <laughs> yes. And the Mass Teachers Association, which you're the president of, Max, is uh, putting forward what's called the Thrive Act uh, on Beacon Hill that would eliminate the MCAS as we know it. Tell us a little bit about the Thrive Act. Well, all right. So let me, let me say right off the bat. So the Thrive Act has three parts, and it's a bill that's supported by a broad coalition. It does not get rid of the MCAS. It gets rid of the high-stakes nature of the MCAS. That's why I said as we know as it. As we know it. Yeah. That's right. right. Um, the, M the MCAS, every state has to have a standardized test that's required by federal law. Maybe we need to change that in the future, but that's law, federal law right now. So the test will continue to be offered um, in th those three areas, at least. It's, it's math, English, and science. What we're proposing to eliminate through a ballot initiative is the high-stakes nature. That is denying people a diploma or sending districts into receivership based on low scores on the MCAS. You know that Holyoke has been in receivership mm -hmm. for now close to eight years. With no end in sight that we know of, according to the last well, time I heard there from. Well, there are talk uh -huh. that... L that Lawrence, which was in longer, maybe Lawrence, Massachusetts, out. not a human being named right. Lawrence. <laughs> That's right, Lawrence, Massachusetts. We have a lot of those towns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a whole song about it, yeah, actually. Holyoke, as they say. As yeah. say Holyoke. Around the, yeah, around the other eastern part of the state, they say Holyoke. I'm right. Like, what, are you talk what town are you talking about? Um, that would, that has a chance as well. There's there's different conversations about that. But the point is a lot of those were put into receivership based on low test scores. So we're trying to eliminate the high-stakes nature of MCAS. 
and focus on what really matters in schools. Now, let's talk about the low test scores and why that happens. Is it is the MCAS a fair assessment of what's going on in the district? How can we know if one district is doing really well with the same test that they are learning and that they are succeeding at passing this test and that is a good assessment of that talent while this other town is learning but not succeeding on this test does that show poorly on that town is the mcas a good rubric for this and if if not why not so i really need to like put on a magician's hat and you can <laughs> you can tell me you can give me a zip code and i can look up the zip code's average family income and mm-hmm. i will be able to tell you basically the average MCAS score. It's, it's been so tightly connected to the, the, the family income. That, that is, so if I know the test scores in advance, then what are we really measuring here? Right. But whatever diagnostic value that I have, it'll still be around. In other words, what we're doing is getting rid of the high stakes nature of it. You can't deny people a diploma based on that. We're returning, we're asking that we return to the core, which is we have state standards on all these different subjects. And then we ask the school to develop curriculum and have their teachers, their professional educators, evaluate whether or not kids have actually mastered the material. So there seems to be, at least from the kind of other side of the Thrive Act, people that may not be supportive of it, this idea that there, with the Thrive Act, there would be no state standard, that it would be district to district, town to town, municipality to municipality. That's not what you're... Even though we just said that there's state standards. There <laughs> are state standards. They exist across a whole range of areas, not just those three that are tested by MCAS. So we have standards, and each district has a curriculum to meet those state standards. How are those standards assessed apart from the MCAS? And do they address like the missing subjects that I see on the MCAS? Because an MCAS only addresses math, science, and English, but like... Because Khalees just took the MCAS <laughs> right before the show. <laughs> ah, Seriously. There was Actually, a test, a are test you test. qualified to be a radio host, I according mean, to the MCAS? Ooh, yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know if... They, they're not interested in social anything, <laughs> which is, I feel like, a, a little bit of a problem. Not that history is not subjective, but to take out social studies and history and not include that if you're looking at a sort of like broad standardized thing. I think that that is a giant oversight. But like, does the state uh, standards look at that as well? Yeah. How, how does the state do it apart from the MCAS? Well, so there, so the things you're raising are really, really important. Because when we think about um, what we want our schools to do, what we want our, our kids to come out of. It's not just, it is importantly academic skills and it's a broad range of them, but it's also all kinds of other things. We want them to be good people. We want them to be, learn ethics. We want them to be citizens, ready to be active in, this, in, in uh, this commonwealth. We also want them to be creative. We want them to be artistic. A, a whole range of things that are beyond what is being tested right now. The state standards have a broader range of subjects, but they, they don't cover all those as well. We Fortunately, we have someone coming to Western Mass, future show uh, oh. you know, suggestion, yeah. Jack Schneider. Professor Jack Schneider is moving from UMass Lowell to UMass Amherst. He has moved, and he is one of the main leaders on um, rethinking how we do assessment to broaden it so that we're looking, so that we're actually asking what do people care about in a school, and how do we then go about measuring it that's not just about filling out the number two pencil, a bubble, you know, a bubble test. What are some of those ideas? Because it does seem like it could be arbitrary. You could have a teacher that is great, but really hard. Or you could have a teacher that is not great, but uh, is really easy. And that people in this one class look like they are fantastic geniuses. And the people in this other class, while they might be fantastic geniuses, right. are because of the teacher, are putting up a barrier for their to, to meet those standards. 
All I can say is that over and over, we've seen that what's a better re- um, you know, proof of how well a student has done and how they will go on to do in college or career is how they're evaluated by their teachers over the course of a, of a high school career. Mm-hmm. That for all the different, through all the unevenness, you know, differences among teachers, when you have standards, when you have a curriculum, and you focus on that, Though that turns out to be proof, that turns out to show whether someone has learned or not. But, but if the standard is not based on a test, how do you gauge it fairly across the board? Well, there are the million ways that educators do that through papers <laughs> and projects and <laughs> recitations and performances and all those other ways. And in fact, part of the most exciting work I think that our 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 MTA member, Jack Schneider, um, is bringing to the table, and people are doing this in different states around the country, is performance-based assessments. Mm-hmm. Let's actually assess a project, something that shows a student has actually learned that, that area. And now, um, and you know, people say, oh, that's totally subjective. It's not. It's turned out there's a whole system by which we have, like, you know, blind evaluation of these papers or these, these musical products or other kinds of per- performance-based assessments that can be done and where you get common, so you have a common response, you have a common evaluation of it. That's much more engaging for students. It's much more close to what we, to understanding what we're actually trying to have kids learn. Speaking with Amherst's Max Page, who is the president of the largest union in New England on the eve of, or a couple days before Labor Day at least. (laughs) Speaking of Eve, she's a big labor organizer, your wife at UMass as well, Uh, Max Page from Amherst, and talking about the Thrive Act and MCAS and whether there can be an alternative way uh, to not make it a high-stakes gambit anymore uh, or contingent upon your ability to graduate, but yet still uh, assess. And being a part of the Massachusetts Teachers Union and the folks that are uh, members of the union, has part of the Thrive Act come about in no small part due to the pressures that they feel on the MCAS as like reflective on their teaching skill too? Absolutely. So this is the the desire to transform this high stakes assessment system comes directly from our members over many, many years. They've wanted to do more learning and less testing. This has come over and over again. It's partly about deprofessionalizing this profession. They're sort of, they go into the profession because they have these skills, this approach, this style of teaching. and to then say, no, you must teach to the test. And let's be clear, where they teach more to the test is poor poor communities, poor communities with fewer resources, tends to be um, communities of, of color more where they say, we have to prepare for this test. We have to spend weeks and weeks preparing for it. It's another so, initi- thing of like equity versus equality. Yeah where this test is concerned and where the implementation of it is concerned. That's, that's ex- exactly right. Max Page, president of the Amherst Teachers Association. We're going to talk more about the MCAS. We're going to talk about more about the Thrive Act, which is a bill on Beacon Hill, as well as the Cherish Act, something that the largest union in New England is pushing forward in Boston. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we're here with Amherst Max Page, who's the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who has put forward, or is at least a supporter of, the Thrive Act, which would change the MCAS as we know it. Not Uh, get rid of it entirely. Yeah, this is not a repeal and replace type situation, is it? This is a replace 
the uh, well, the Thrive Act would get rid of the high school graduation requirement and replace it with standards-based local evaluation by every district. It would also get rid of the receivership, the sending districts into receivership. We've we've done that three times. Lawrence, Holyoke, and Southbridge failure. Don't trust me if you don't want to. The Boston Globe did a comprehensive evaluation. It has not achieved what it promised to do. And then I think what's key about the Thrive Act is it would have a commission to look at new ways of doing assessment of our schools and our and student work. So the only I have spoken to some teachers who do feel that the MCAS has a role and that as you know may they may or may not love the fact that they have to teach so much to it, but that the role would be that there is a statewide assessment via this test. I mean, test. I, I kind of wish that that test were better, better written if that's the case. And then the <laughs> idea would be if there was a more localized access to some sort of standard, would a diploma from Northampton be valued more than a diploma from Holyoke? What's the sort of Mass Teachers Association assessment of of that notion that if it were more district oriented that you might see somebody graduated from X community and have preconceived notions about what their diploma means? Well, we already have preconceived notions. Unfortunately, it's based on race and class already. We believe in we trust our educators who have to meet certain standards to become educators, that they are evaluating their students according to state standards. There's a good balance here. We have state standards across a variety of areas, but then we have local districts and we hire teachers and we trust them. There's no one more trusted other than maybe nurses and firefighters than our educators, our public school educators. And people believe that they have the best interests of their kids at heart. And I just want to come back again, Monty. The MCAS will be here. If we win passage of the Thrive Act or the ballot initiative specifically that we're leading an effort on for next November to get rid of just the graduation requirement, there will still be an MCAS. So if there's, you know, value in it, great. I I went to Amherst Public Schools. I took the California Test of Basic Skills. It kind of landed one day. We took it. I don't know. Maybe it had some value to the teachers, but it didn't, like, transform the entire curriculum. It didn't, like, send our school into receivership. It was, it was a diagnostic test that had some, maybe some value. Now, this is me as playing devil's advocate, as a person who is the son of a, a retired member of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and you who have to advocate for these teachers. Is, is this push to eliminate the high-stakes gambit just a way to protect teachers rather than protect Students, but how does it not also protect students if we're using well, the MCAS? Let's as find more out what Max Page thinks about it. Okay. <laughs> I said I was devil's advocate about this. Okay. Yeah, it is not about um, protecting. I mean, what teachers are so frustrated about? They do they do assessment all the time. You know, Mary Cowie was a retired member from Northampton, outstanding math teacher. She got really ramped up one time with some legislators who were talking about we need a way to evaluate students. She's like. I'm evaluating students every single day. I know where they are. I know what each one of them needs. The test gets in the way of that. The test and the test prep gets in the way of real learning. And we're seeing that we're seeing that here we are 20 years after we have this high stakes test. It has not achieved what the ed reformers promised. They said it would raise everyone, it would narrow the achievement gaps. It's failed. Why don't we why don't we look at it and go like, you know what? This emphasis on high stakes tests which is only in 8 states Maybe it's time for to do something different. And the, the new way, the way that is actually much more authentic is going back to having standards, performance-based assessments by teachers in their classrooms. Max Page, Amherst resident and president of the Mass Teachers Union. You are also are an Amherst Regional High School graduate. Your children are. 
There's been a lot of weirdness going on in Amherst when it comes to the school committee, the superintendent search. You want to weigh in on that? A lot of resignations. As part of somebody who is ensconced in the world of that community and teachers there and, and is a leader amongst teachers across the state. I don't want to weigh in on it. It's really painful, really difficult. Clearly, young people were harmed. It feels clear that there was not enough done to address that. There was discrimination towards specifically LGBTQ people in that community. That's the allegation. That's that's right. I mean, there is a whole study being done, investigation being done. So it's, it's worth yeah. seeing that. But that's that's the that's the what we, we appears that has happened. And unfortunately, um, it needs to be fixed, clearly. Not to mention that the kids had to basically break the story themselves Which, on for for their peers. What journalists and budding journalists there in Amherst. That's so uh, it's inspirational. Um, the Mass Teachers Association and you were also big supporters of what's called sometimes the millionaire's tax, sometimes the fair share amendment that has been implemented and is now being incorporated into the Governor Healy's first budget. What's your take on how that money that was specifically designated towards education and transportation infrastructure uh, is being allocated in this first budget. Yes, the, the fair share amendment, which we passed last November and was implemented as of January 1, is going to produce, we think it'll produce more than $2 billion every single year dedicated to public schools, colleges, and transportation. Something that took 107 years to get to, and we did it, and we hope it's around for 214 years. But that's so, it. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 remarkable. I think it's a remarkable achievement, and we are really proud in the MTA to put so much energy and and member funds into making sure this got one, we got this passed. Okay, first budget, they incorporated one billion dollars. In other words, legislature said, let's be cautious. We don't know how much this tax is going to generate. We'll only spend one billion this year in fair share funds. So what do we get? We get, you know, half a billion dollars in new transportation funding, fixing the T, but expanding regional transportation, all kinds of things on the transportation side. Then on the, and a half a billion on education, free universal school meals forever for everyone. No no question about how much money you have or who you are. You just come to school, you get to ha- you get to have meals there. Um, we're having, you know, this a move towards free community college. We have 150 million dollars for fixing up and greening our public school and college buildings. It's really remarkable first first batch of funds going um, towards our schools and colleges and transportation. It's thrilling. The next big initiative for the Mass Teachers Association, apart from the Thrive Act, which we talked about, which has to do with MCAS, is the Cherish Act, which is uh, not a wonderful song from Madonna. It is what? Well, it is a wonderful song yeah, that's from Madonna. True. It's an okay I, song. It's an okay song, yeah. <laughs> She has better songs. That's true. Okay. Well, you know, it's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. All right. So the Cherish Act is something very close to my heart. Obviously, I teach at UMass. You cherish and, it. Uh, and I do cherish Stop it. Stop it. it. it is <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's going to make the dad jokes around here? Me. Okay? Oh, There's I two guess dads that's you. In this room. All right, you're <laughs> and not enough room for both of your jokes. <laughs> so the Cherish Act is really a blueprint for high-quality, debt-free public higher ed, which is something we need in this Commonwealth. We're so proud of our public schools, but we are like at the bottom of the barrel in terms of the per capita spending on public higher education. We've gotten away with it because we say, oh, we've got all these other fancy private schools, but where does everyone go? Where do the working class, middle class kids go? Do they go to our community colleges, our state universities? And UMass. And so this is a blueprint to making it just basically say from, from early on, you can say to any kid, you will be able to graduate from any of the public colleges and universities without debt. And, you know, the debt now takes people right into middle age. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of nods in here. My son is in his first year of college at Bard because it was too expensive for him to go to UMass Amherst. I only paid yeah. off my student loans last year. 
And Khalees is 30. What? I am a year younger than you. Right. She's 44. <laughs> I get so hard. This is, this is a basic right. And frankly, the wake of the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court did around you know, shooting down affirmative action, shooting down the federal debt uh, forgiveness that Biden had put forward. What's the answer to that? To me, the answer is just we're going to do it at the state level. We're going to guarantee you go from high school. Where do you go next? If you want to go right on to college for four years, great. If you want to go for two years, or maybe you go off and work, and maybe at some other point you decide, you know what, I'm gonna, I need to come back to get some skills, or I just want to study something different over some course of time over the course of my life. Everyone should have that access. That's what we're, that's what we're after. But also on high quality. You don't say to, to working class kids, well, you can go to the the school, the, the public schools public colleges, but they're no good, you know, whatever. You're just going to have to get by with worse facilities, low-paid people, exploited adjuncts. No, we have to do, we have to provide them a great experience and fair working conditions for the employees as well. Where does the Cherish Act stand right now and where in the local delegation is it, is it being supported? Well, should I, I should say that both the Thrive Act and the Cherish Act are headlined on the Senate side by Senator Joe Comerford from from Western Mass, which is which is terrific. Uh, Pat Duffy from Holyoke mm-hmm. is uh, behind the, um, the the Thrive Act as as I mean the the Cherish Act as well on the House side. Um, we have a big hearing on the 18th of September is for the Cherish Act, and then October 4th is for the Thrive Act. So this is a big fall to have uh, really, you know, really make the case for these. As you know, these got have to be decided by next summer, these big bills, or else they die and we have to start all over again. Max Page, who's the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, last question. You've been a longtime opponent to the University of Massachusetts spending money on UMass Division I football. They had a big win in their first game. They've already been offered millions of dollars to play at other schools. Your take on week one UMass Minutemen football. Yeah, on national television, no less, right? Look, I just think, you know, there was a day when we had UMass football and they won national championships and people went out and it was a good day. In the past year since we made this move to Division One, we spent millions. Usually they lose most of their games. This is not the way you want to build a great public university. Max Page from Amherst, president of the Massachusetts. Is that your, your, your low-key way of saying they should maybe spend more money on the women's sports because they're doing better? Well, that might be a good idea, sure. Or on education. <laughs> it is a school after all. Hey! <laughs> Thank you so much, Max Page. That's not what we're here for. <laughs> Coming up, game nerd Justin Dowd shares with us some board games that even you can get through a stressful move with. He's more a nerd than that, but, you know, we'll we'll leave it at that. But up next, a local hero spotlight on one of the oldest brew pubs in the region, the People's Pint. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Time once again for our local hero spotlight with Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks, and the only other Alden B in uh, the four <laughs> counties of Western Mass, apart from the NEPM News Department's own Alden Bourne, it's Alden Booth from the People's Pint. Now, Are you it. going to put in a clip of Alden Bourne just I saying should. his name? For New England Public Media. I'm Alden Bourne. Alden Bourne is a great reporter that works here at NEPM. He's my neighbor. Oh, Oh, wow. He also used to work on 60 Minutes, a little-known television program. Yes. Um, But I often have to, like, remind myself, I'm talking now to Alden Bourne, the reporter, not Alden Booth, the restaurateur of the People's Pint in Greenfield. Welcome. Thank you. The People's Pint is an institution in Greenfield, Franklin County. When did that restaurant get started? We opened the first day of 1997, 20, almost 27 years now. That makes it real easy for me. That's the year I graduated. 
graduated from high school. <laughs> so it makes yeah. it real easy for me to remember how long you've been open. Well, I, I'm reminded of it because it was about already six or seven years ago when we started hiring people who weren't born when we opened. Oh, no. <laughs> that was a, that oh, was a little no. tough to swallow. And People's Pint, as the name would suggest, does have an overarching, I would say, socialist-leaning message, uh, and also beer. <laughs> I mean, it's in the title. Yeah. It is The People's Pint. <laughs> there we go. So talk a little bit about the mission of The People's Pint when you opened and, and how that mission continues today. I'm, I'm very pleased that our mission, when I look at our mission statement, has really pretty much been the same for this whole, whole time. We've always put an emphasis on... What can we do to support not just local businesses, but the people and institutions and organizations in the area and uh, have never felt like we need to really go too far beyond these few counties in terms of telling our story. Mm -hmm. It's always been like, well, I've always believed if you do something and do it well, people will come. It's seasonal food, local food, supporting the local community. It's thinking about our waste stream and really trying to minimize what is thrown away, especially nowadays with plastics. That's been a big issue for me in the last few years is like, what can we do to minimize plastic use and also to promote staying local? You know, we have a bike program still where we support people who use their bikes and we give out gift certificates to those people. Talk a little bit about that. How does that work? Well, it's been around for a long time. Unfortunately, now I think mostly it's people who who know about it and are just (laughs) have been cashing in, basically. Cyclists exploiting the good grace of the meal plan. Share the wealth. So we're trying to encourage people who don't normally bike to start biking and take advantage of a gift certificate. But yeah, that's, oh my Lord, I think at this point we've given out gift certificates for something like 200,000 miles of bike miles. So you and ride your bike to the People's Pint in Greenfield and then you Well, no, you don't have to ride it to the pint. You can ride it anywhere. And we, it's a trust system so that if you, uh, the trust system is you need to use your bike at a time when you normally would have driven. Uh-huh. And if you do that, then just keep a record over the whole month. We have a form. And if it's four miles, that's great. Four miles a day, six miles a day, 10 miles a day, whatever. Turn it in at the end of the month or whenever you want to. And we'll give you a gift certificate for, I think at this point, it's every hundred miles, you get a $10 gift certificate. That's cool. That's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, totally yeah, worth it. You're going to start biking here, Monty? <laughs> well, we're speaking with Alden Booth from the People's Pint, the iconic landmark Greenfield business that's been there since 1997, and Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. Before we get into your important piece of the puzzle of Western Mass beer culture, what's on the menu that's coming from our fields this season? And has it been harder because of all the, uh, the floods that we've been experiencing and more rain coming? Mm-hmm. Well, our menu is pretty standard, pretty much what we've always done. Uh, we have a lot of seasonal uh, items. I could list 20 or 30 farms that we, we regularly get food from. And it's not just produce. It's obviously fruit. It's dairy, cheeses, uh, ice cream, maple syrup, lots of apples and, and peaches. Not this year, unfortunately. Peaches haven't <laughs> yep. been around. But we, you know, we, do the, we do the local burgers. We have Hager's Farm right there in, in Coleraine. It supplies us mostly with all our beef and, and a lot of tofu. And you know, for a long time, people thought we were only vegetarian. We actually do smoke our own sausage. We make our own sausages and we smoke pork and have pork sandwiches. But we also have a, a lot of items on our menu that are not meat. That's another thing by the way, with, with climate change and everything, we've really been trying to cut back on how much meat we eat. So we make sure that our even our dishes that have meat are small portions. Peanut noodles we've been doing for <laughs> 25 years, and people yeah. still love them. And we do the quesadillas and the nice thing about a lot of our menu is it is flexible. If you do a quesadilla, you can put Swiss.
Swiss chard in it. You can put mm-hmm. kale. You can put whatever's available locally and play around with it. So it's our menu is pretty flexible. So it's not that easy to source from 20 to 30 farms. And I think if we had another restaurant on here, they'd be going, oh, my God. So how do you do that? How are you able to source from so many farms? Do you have a food delivery service that focuses on local? Do you get out on your bike? Is it some <laughs> combination of the farmer's market? Yeah. How do you do Farmer it? Michael Doctor who also rides his bike all the That's right. Place, brings all the vegetables to you. Yeah, he's been inspiring to us for years. I remember seeing him biking around the fields out there. Um, it's easier than it used to be. I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned riding around on my bike. Back in the 90s, that's what I would do. I would just be riding my bike, and I'd stop, and I'd see a farm, and I'd go in and say, I'm starting up a restaurant. Would you be interested in selling us onions or potatoes? And at that point, farmers were like, uh, yeah, uh, sure. You know, no, <laughs> Restaurants had not approached them. Um, they didn't really have a system for contacting and de- de- delivering. So it was a little trickier. We would go around with our pickup truck and pick up stuff from, from all over the place. And we're still dealing with Jekinowski. That's been 25 years of potatoes. Wow. Joe Sikowski. Ice cream from Bart's and Snows has been with us the whole time. Pine Hill and Clarkdale Orchards. And what makes it, I think, easier nowadays is, well, first of all, we do use a distributor. We use Marty's Local, and they have been fantastic about supporting local farms. And we know where it's coming from. They tell us. So we know we're getting a lot of local food from them. And then, you know, a lot of these places now, after all these years of CISA promoting local and everything, they contact us. So now Mm -hmm. a lot of farms have great programs. Kitchen Garden does a great job. They contact us. They say, what do you need? They send out emails about what they have, which is just so different than what it was 20 years ago. That's great. So like we've got the the start where you're getting vegetables and and fruits from places local, but at the tail end of this, you're composting. In fact, like (laughs) so last week and before we talked to the folks at the Compost Collective and you were their first customer. Yeah. And that was actually hard for me. I mean, it was easy (laughs) because it's such a great organization and I wanted to support them. And we did right off the bat. But you know, before that, I had been taking it all home every week (laughs) in my pickup truck and I have my little tractor and I have had I have the best compost for <laughs> decades. In fact, <laughs> actually for a number of years I take it home and feed it to our pigs mm. and they loved it, you know, a half-eaten burger or some peanut noodles or whatever. And we feed a lot to our chickens. So it was a little hard to give that up and I still take some home, but no, it's it's been easier. I mean, obviously as I get older, it's it's a lot of work to take 5-gallon buckets home and that was 30 or 40 a week easily because <laughs> nothing gets thrown away that's organic. It's all composted. And that's and amazing because uh, Compost Cooperative comes out of Greenfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a worker-owned co-op. It's, it's recidivative. Helping, yeah. Oh, it's just fantastic. It's so, it's it feels so cool. good that they're doing well and they're, they're there. So I'm happy to happy to support them. Uh, actually, all the grain from the brewery goes to a, a farm that feeds their pigs and their uh, goats uh, up in Northfield. Well, that's a nice segue because so. we are speaking with the People's Pint and Alden Booth, who founded that restaurant and brewery in 1997 in downtown Greenfield. Who is currently your head brewer? His name is Matt Wanamaker. Uh, he's brewed in a lot of places. Uh, do you know him? I know him well. <laughs> I, just, I just want to say, what a great great last name for someone who brews or makes things. But you are making, okay, well. Well, we only hire people, brewers that have appropriate names because the one before that was Chris Sellers. Yeah. (laughs) And he sellers all of his beers and then sells them to you. So what are some of the staples that are part of the People's Pint palette of beers? Well, 
I have to start with Farmer Brown. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has been that was supposed to be a porter when we opened, and uh, we were still learning the system. <laughs> so, and you were doing the brewing then, right? Uh, Dan was. Dan, okay. Dan Young and I started it, and he was doing the brewer. But we uh, we trained other people pretty quickly. But that first batch was like, oops, I think we kind of cooked it a little bit too long. That's not a porter. What is it? Uh, it's a brown ale, <laughs> and it has been our number one seller this whole time. Wow. I think it's partly because, yeah, it's a great beer, but also because it's not a super hoppy beer, and there's so many hoppy IPAs out there right yes. now. Yes. Like and just, it's it's almost like a classic English mild style, it, yeah, which exactly. is a style that is just underappreciated. I was talking yeah. to somebody else this weekend about how underappreciated English-style beers are, yeah. but browns especially. And like the initial wave of American browns being hoppier, being more in that IPA profile, Like yeah. the beautiful thing about the farmer brown is it's just like malty and clean. Thank you. Boy, you know your beers. (laughs) You said it all. I don't need to say anything more. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's a beer that a lot of people, when they don't think they like beer, they like Farmer Brown because they associate so many beers with being somewhat bitter. Yeah. Um, So that's great. Our Pied Piper. IPA is our second seller. It's been around also since day one. But it's not one of those traditional New England-style super juicy no. IPAs. I mean, it actually is traditional in the sense that right. it, is a, it is an English IPA yeah. and then what's considered now sort of a Western IPA where it's uh, all Cascade hops. We're not using the big juicy hops. It's not real hazy. And I you know, I like those these new New England IPAs, but I like having IPA or Pied Piper on. And then we, you're talking about English beers. We had a, uh, what's called an ESB, an extra special oh, bitter, yeah. for years. And we were like, yeah. Yeah, we're going to call it an extra special bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, now called Hope Street Amber, mm-hmm. and it still says on the label ESB. But when we got to the point where people were asking for a pint of ESB, I realized, you know, I don't think people know what an ESB is, yeah, especially because the word bitter yeah, makes they, people think it's bitter. And they it's think that not. it's going to be like an IPA, and right. it's really not. What it's it opposite. is is just like a, a dry ale. Exactly, and not too hoppy. Mm-hmm. So that one has also been around almost the whole time. And I should mention one other thing, a local collaboration that's supporting these a lot of these farms that have been suffering from the floods is that we're going to do a collaboration with Floodwater in mm-hmm. Shelburne Falls and with Valley Malt and make a red ale that we then are going to use to raise some funds for the for the farms. It's nice to have it, you know, 12 taps at our restaurant because it allows us to brew small batches of just, you name it, he brews it, uh, just a huge variety of beers. Want to bring you know, attention to your be- slippery slope? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the slippery slope. Love that one. It has its followers. <laughs> and, you know, the neat thing about slippery slope is that's uh, apple cider from 400 gallons of apple cider from uh, uh, Pine Hill every year. And uh, so that's a really fun collaboration. As we were driving down, one amazing thing you were telling me is that despite the influx of so many great small breweries over competing with each other, you sell 70% of your beer from the restaurant. Yeah, thank God. It would say, what a tough market right now to be selling everything wholesale to stores and there's only so much shelf space. Has it been interesting watching this transition from 1997 where microbreweries were barely a thing? Sam Adams was the closest thing I think people might have had in their mind yeah. at that time. That and Pete's yeah. Wicked. Yeah, and yeah Pete's, Pete's Wicked. And, and then they were coming. BBC opened a year before we did. Right. To Great Acclaim. Brewing Company. People, yeah, people were excited about that. And there were a bunch of Vermont breweries that had And opened. Northampton Brewery. Northampton Brewery's been around for a long time. And then yeah. you had like Magic Hat and you had Catamount. You had right. some others in Vermont. Uh, long Trail. Almost, it's been a series of waves, actually. Back then, there was a sort of an initial wave. There were quite a lot of breweries. And then it sort of leveled off for a while in the early 2000s. And then it just, you know what's happened. It's just taken off. Yeah. Alden Booth, the founder of the People's Pint in downtown Greenfield. 
Springfield, which has been there. I don't want to do the math because it'll make me feel painfully old uh, to see how long ago 1997 was. 26. So 26 years. 26 January years. 1st would be beginning of 27. 26 years. <laughs> wow. Remember, I can do this math. I can't do it. I can't even bring myself to do it. And uh, But the, an institution for sure supporting local throughout this entire time, supporting um, a lot of the ideals that people espouse in regards to eating local and climate change and doing what and you should. And keeping the money local. Like, they don't take cards and they yeah. haven't for eight. Oh, we do now. Oh, you yeah. do we now. We do now. Yeah. Oh. I mean, that was a big thing. For years, we didn't take credit cards. And it got to the point where people were like, come on, <laughs> give us a break. So we finally were like, all right, we, we, we do it. Some people told us, you're not going to succeed if you don't take credit cards, which I don't think is true. But we finally did start doing it. Alden Booth from the People's Pint in Greenfield and Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks. You can find out about all of our local hero restaurants and farms and what's been going on with the floods at buylocalfood.org. So go make me get a quesadilla. Yeah. Or I always get the wings. That's what I Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Those things. I get the plowmen's, actually. (laughs) I like the plowmen's, too. That's my favorite. Coming up, Holyoke's Justin Dowd of Start Playing Games, talking about essential board games to keep nearby during stressful times, like perhaps going back to school. Or, you know, a move. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Hi, I'm with Justin Dowd, who is the founder of Start Playing Games, an organization that gets people together to play board games in places, sometimes online, sometimes in bars. But because it's summer and maybe you want to take advantage of your AC instead of staying outside in the sweltering and possible rain, maybe you want a board game or two to accompany you on that. And Justin is in the middle of a move right now, so taking some lovely time out to speak with us about the games that he hasn't packed yet because they're too good to pack. Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me, Khalees. No I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, the, the <laughs> Board problem games is, you is may that... have noticed are my jam, so yes, by all means. Yes. <laughs> I, you may have reached out to me about this, and my list got way longer than I intended it to be. <laughs> Because I have a problem, which you know. I don't know anything about yeah. board game problems. I certainly don't have over 750 in my Kickstarter <laughs> projects total. So, yeah, we don't have to talk about that. We'll just talk about these things that we currently have that we like playing with. Yeah, with other people. I love it. How did you start getting into board games? There was one on a shelf at an apartment that I lived in, and I opened the box and started reading it. That game was Dominion, by the way. (laughs) The roommate that I was living with at the time, we took the game out, and I kid you not, we played it for about six hours straight. And from that point forward, I had a pretty significant board game problem. You know, I got the game night going mostly because I, I think that board games are a really great way to bring folks together. And it's a really great thing to, to go social, low stress in terms of kind of what's going on. And one of the big things that I really focus on in the game nights is that I want to be a teacher. You know, I think that one of the hardest things about board games is that there's a lot of rules to them. I think someone being able to kind of shepherd you through that first play of a thing is going to make it a lot easier to get excited about the game and actually get to know and hang out with the folks that are also there excited about games as well. Yeah. So uh, what I tried to do is I, I broke it out into three categories. Okay. Things that I was really thinking about. I came up with the low brain power games. Those were the ones where it's like, you know, I just finished moving for three hours. I've been moving stuff. I just want to play something silly and light. So I've got a few low brain power games. Got a few that I call the perennial faves. The ones that I'm just like, I can't get rid of those. They're the last <laughs> ones to go out the door. 
And then I have the ones that are easy to quote unquote forget. They're so small that it doesn't matter. You can just stick them in your pocket, throw them in that last bag. These are the games that are really easy to just kind of get out and get going. Nice. So let me start with some of those low break power ones. The very first one that I would absolutely recommend is a game called Herbaceous. Herbaceous is a lovely game where you are just making little potted plants for your new apartment that you're moving into. It is super chill, very relaxing. There's not really a lot of competition. It's just kind of a nice, relaxed, good time. The art is incredible in this game, and it's just got so much personality. It's so relaxed. It's great for a really stressful time that you're working. And perhaps a little extra on brand. A little extra on brand. It's yeah, nice it's to see somebody true. else's apartment shaping up when yours is just a massive array of boxes. Am I still mm-hmm. speaking from experience because I haven't unpacked in my new house? Maybe. Maybe yeah, the only are. thing unpacked I've... is half of my board games. <laughs> it's okay. Our kitchen is entirely boxes right now. We can kind of get into our fridge. That's it. Another one that I'd absolutely recommend is Jaipur. If there's one thing I know about moving, moving is stressful. And sometimes there's going to be little moments of frustration. Jaipur is real elbowy. It's really needly. <laughs> it's, you know, you're going to take that card that somebody else really, really wanted. But it's a very light, very silly game. You get in, you get out. And it's just all about collecting little resources that you're then going to sell back to a market. And you just want to sell the biggest pile of them. Because if you have the most of them, then you're going to get the best deal for it. And it's just really great. It is a very mean game, though. So it's definitely <laughs> a fair warning in advance. If that's not what you're looking for with your partner, maybe go with Herbaceous. That's going to be a better <laughs> choice. It is a remarkably solid two-player game, though, and fast. It really is. And the other one, and this is one that I don't think a lot of folks know about that I have a, I love, love, love this one so much. It's called Fantasy Realms. I'm also going to call this generic name, the board game. <laughs> there, there is nothing that when you look at the box, when you look at the name of it, that's going to jump out at you. But it's a really lovely little puzzle game where every card scores points in different ways, depending on what it's hanging out with. And so everybody likes a wizard, but we all know wizards are better when they have the wizard staff. So you want to find the wizard card and maybe get the wizard staff card but be careful because the barbarian is not really good around wizards because they break stuff (laughs) and so if you have the barbarian card you want to get rid of it so that it's not losing you points because barbarians don't play nice with wizards (laughs) it's a really silly game it's a lot of fun it's like just the right amount of thank you at the end of the day to feel like you're actually making some cool decisions it's another quick simple thing that you're not going to be really taxing yourself over i've got one last low break power game for you and it's basically a piece of furniture so i'm going to (laughs) mention that this is clask Clask is so good. It was the very last game that came out of my old apartment when I moved out of that space. Clask is air hockey without any of that pesky electronics to get the air going. (laughs) Um, It is a little ball that you're just going to smack around with your hand kind of underneath the table. It is absolutely the best way to really chill out after doing a whole bunch of moving. It is so silly. It's so fun. We played so many games of this when we were kind of getting towards that point where, hey, the only thing that's left from the apartment is this box of class. I guess we should play that. <laughs> it was great. Hey, look, this game is here. We should definitely play it. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Uh, I can't recommend it enough. I think this one is also really good for families. It's really good for the giant nerds like you and me. It's good for anybody that likes playing is going to have a great time with this. And it's good for all ages too. So if you're moving with a family, I think a young kid is going to enjoy this just as much as uh, us wise and adults are going to have a good time with it too. So some of the easy to forget ones. I can't not talk about button shy games. I think I can fit all of their board games, the entire collection that they have put out. I think I could fit all of them into my pockets. Um, <laughs> Your pockets would that... be very bulgy. They have a lot of games. <laughs> yes, they do. But the but, beautiful uh, thing about them is that they they specifically and intentionally make wallet-sized and packed games. Mm-hmm. So they're super tiny. They fit in your pocket. They always have like cards. They're really simple, like really easy to pick up. I can't recommend them enough either. Right. The, the two that I would specifically call out are Sprawlopolis, which is just a lovely little puzzle game where the game tells you, you need to make a city that does this. And then the game gives you all of the cards that don't do that. And you have to figure out how to make it work. The other one that I would recommend, and this one's a solo game actually, is one called Rove, where you are an adorable little robot that you are programming to go and collect things on the surface of the moon. It is so lovely. It's great as like an individual solo game, or if you're sitting with your partner on the coffee table, that's the only thing left in your living room. That is another really great one where you can kind of sit together and talk through what you're going to do. It is a great little game. Other easy to forget company is Oink Games, who makes beautiful small boxes that they wouldn't fit in a pocket, but they'd fit pretty much in the corner of every box that you have packed. The two games that I specifically want to call out for them, the first one is a game called Scout. Scout is wonderful. It is uh, it's what's called a ladder building game where you're kind of just trying to do a little bit better than the last thing that somebody put down on the table. And you want to do it just a little bit faster than everybody else. But the art in these games and all of these games in the Oink line are just gorgeous. They're very minimalist. They're so beautiful. I always have a good time when I play Scout. Other one that I'm going to mention is Moon Adventure, which is a cooperative game where you are stuck on the moon. Something bad has happened and all of your good stuff has been knocked across the surface of the moon. And so you and your friends are now frantically working together to run around the moon, find all of your supplies and get them back so that you can stay uh, stay going long enough for NASA to come collect you and, and save you from the moon danger. Hopefully intact and not just like oh, your parts. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Um, the others I'm going to call are my perennial favorites. These are the ones that there was no chance that I was going to be sleeping somewhere and these games weren't there. So the very first one is maybe my favorite game of all time. It's a game called Innovation. It is a ridiculous little tech tree building game where you just get a bunch of cards that do a whole bunch of things. Depending on how you play the game, it can be really knifey or you can be building like a cool little personal engine that does other neat things for you. It's a really versatile game. It's completely inscrutable the first time you play it. And then every time that you play it after that, it makes a little bit more sense. I am embarrassed at the number of games of this that I have played (laughs) and at the number of times that I have purchased it. I keep (laughs) releasing new versions and I keep buying them because I love the game that much. I was going to say there's a new, there was, I think, a new one that just launched on Kickstarter not too long ago or on Backerkit. And I immediately thought of you when I saw it. It was on Backerkit kit and I absolutely backed it. Um, so yeah, I am I am so excited to get it. The new version is a big change to the game. We're not going to get into all that, but I am super excited to play more of it. The, the last game that I'm going to mention is probably the most absurd of the, all of the games that I've mentioned in terms of just how big it is and how much space it takes up. That would be Brass Birmingham, which is... <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sorry, everyone at home. I laugh because I know it's not quite an edge of darkness or a food magnate scale, but it's still pretty big. It is a great big game, but there is no better game about becoming a 19th century business owner in Birmingham specifically, trying to make England England with coal. And this is not the game you should be playing when you're moving. Um, (laughs) Full disclosure. But I have such a great time with it. It is such a wonderful game. There's so much to it. It's a lot. But every time I play it, it continues to just be really, really good, really surprising, which means it was with innovation just on that stack the games that were the last ones that came over when I was finishing my move. Justin Dow, thank you so much for hanging out with me suggesting some really great games. If people are overwhelmed by the rules or the things that they encounter in board games, what are some suggestions to kind of allay those fears or talk them back from the cliff, shall we say? Sure. Well, there's two cliffs that we're talking about. There's the cliff that you and I have run towards, Khalees, which is that, you know, we're just going to collect all of them. The board games are our Pokemon. But no, I think if you're worried about board game rules, I think theme can be a really big seller. If you find a style of game or a game that's telling a story that you think is exciting to you, if you love the Marvel Universe, go try and find a game that does some work with the Marvel Universe. If you really like old Victorian horror, there are board games about Victorian horror. So many. Um, Find the those things because the complexity, it's going to feel worth it if you're invested. And so I would really recommend find those things that align with what you really get excited about. You're going to start getting excited about those systems. Once you get in there, a lot of games do a lot of the same things. Once you really start to learn some of the basic rules, a lot of other games are going to get a lot easier to learn as well. Thanks so much, Justin. Congratulations on your move, and I hope that the rest goes smoothly. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you all over soon. Yes, please. I have all of these games. All of them. (laughs) Wednesday on the Fabulous No, start playing games. Start (laughs) playing. There we are. There we are. There's our microphone. Yay! Start playing games. The event Holyoke Justin Dowd started to get people together playing board games happens tomorrow, Wednesday, August 30th, at the Brass Cat in East Hampton, starting at 7 p.m. Every two weeks, they highlight a specific game, and tomorrow that game will be Land versus Sea. It is a great game with a terrible color scheme, and it's generically titled, but honestly, it's a really great game. Come on out. It's going to be a wicked good time. I might even be there. Nice. Wednesday on The Fabulous 413, summer ain't over. We've still got almost a month left, y'all. It's still here. We'll celebrate with Shakespeare and Company and Lennox, who have a Bowie-inspired multicultural take on A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Theater from the Bard to Bridge Street when we hear about Pulling at the Roots, a series of three site-specific plays staged in an historic barn on the grounds of historic Northampton that move the audience through three centuries of Northampton history. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Clee Smith. Thanks to the Fabulous 413 team. We'll see you tomorrow. 